This is the Identity Shockwave podcast, where we explore the journey of self-discovery and the many layers of who we are as we ride this wave called life. Four questions, real people, endless exploration. I'm your host, Lori Vaitzig. Hey, you made it. Welcome to the Identity Shockwave podcast, where we talk about all things identity and self-discovery and who we are and who we want to be and all those great things. My name is Lori, and I am so stoked that you are here. And I'm feeling festive. It's almost Christmas. It's right around the corner. And looking back on this year and this podcast, for example, I launched the podcast in October, actually on my birthday, my 38th birthday. And back then, I was like, I'm going to release an episode once a week. And that quickly became unrealistic. And then I thought maybe I'd do it biweekly or twice a month. That's a little bit more manageable. But in the reality of things, I really just don't want to get creatively burned out. And I want to make sure I'm giving you content that's really thoughtful and intentional and something you enjoy. So I think I'm going to be releasing these episodes once a month because also I don't want to run out of people to talk to. So if you're listening and you have someone really interesting in your life that you think would want to come on this podcast, hey, shoot me a message. I would love to hear from them. Anywho, today's episode, woohoo! I've been really looking forward to interviewing this person and allowing you to hear all the knowledge and all of the stories that she has to offer. Once again, this is one of my best friends. <laughs> you see a pattern here? I'm just like starting out by interviewing my friends, but hey, I'm lucky to know a lot of really interesting people. So today on the show, we have Dr. Elka Vacious. She is an academic, she is a professor, and she studies all things counterculture, subculture. Um, she's talked about and studied about the Holocaust. She studies and is writing a book about children of Klan members. And whew, the angles that she comes at with identity and how it relates to her work is truly just, oh, man. You're going to learn a lot today. You know, I should just leave it to the podcast and let you listen to it and, you know, form your own takeaway from it. My intro is a gross understatement to all that she does. So just give it a listen. But before we get into it, I just want to say thank you for being on this ride with me. You know, all of your support and encouragement has meant so much and it keeps me going. And I'm so excited to see what 2024 has to come. So Hope you have a wonderful, happy, and healthy holiday season, a prosperous new year, sending love to you and yours. And without further ado, here's our episode with Dr. Elka Vacious. Dr. Elka Vacious, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here with us today. Hi, Lori. I'm so excited to be here, too. <laughs> and I love calling you doctor. It's it, it's a, a sense of pride for me. It's like, I have a doctor friend. <laughs> Who's only good with, with band-aids, by the way, you know, <laughs> not a real one. <laughs> um, so Elka and I have known each other for 12 years now, you said? Yes. It's been 12 years. years. Yes, 12 years. 12 years. 
Um, we met in New York City, and she's become one of my best friends, and so is her husband. And um, I'm really excited for the things that you have to share today, because I think you're going to give a really, really unique and informed take on identity and all the things that you do. So to kick things off, if you could boil it down to a few words, how would you introduce yourself and what's your elevator pitch? I think that this is such a wonderful question, um, especially if you had to put things down in a few words because academics are really unable to do that. So I'm going to I'm going to try to be concise. So I think that the first thing that pops into my head is Dutch. Right. <laughs> and it's funny how identities work. You know, they are so much related to the space or the environment that you're in, because had I still lived in the Netherlands, being Dutch would not have been an identity marker in any kind of way. Actually, being saying that you're like Dutch for first and foremost in the Netherlands would make you a bit of a nationalist, right? But here in America, it's like that's, you know, it's like for me, it's uh, I'm Dutch. Um, so, and then other things, you know, and in no specific order, I would say a mother, an academic, an educator, and a wife. Those are wonderful descriptors and that makes me so happy that one of the first things you said was mother because you have an exceptional child who's an amazing hockey player <laughs> and uh you're just you're just raising a, a a wonderful human and it's funny that you said that about being dutch because adversely i feel like being a new yorker even if you're in New York, you're like, I'm a New Yorker. Like, it's it's something that we all just, like, really hang on to regardless of where we are. And I think maybe me moving to California, <laughs> it's even more so now because I feel like I have to prove myself and that I, I need to, like, show that I'm this identity and, and this thing. So it's interesting that you say it, you know, in the Netherlands, saying that you're Dutch is, like, you know, something of, like, being, like, a bit of a nationalist when here... We maybe because the United States is such a melting pot and we have so many different cultures from everywhere, not to say that other countries don't have that, but I feel like our um, heritage is something that we hold on to so dearly, especially as Italians, you know, we like to talk about that all the time. Yeah, but you know what? You know what I think is interesting, though, that we say it with kind of like pride, but it's mostly in my case, a, it, it's, it's kind of like a veiled apology for, I'm sorry, I'm a little weird, but I'm Dutch. You know, that's my excuse, what's yours? <laughs> you know? And so I think in a way we used identity to kind of, you know, already kind of like set the stage for further kind of things that we're gonna do. So maybe you thought about that. It's like, what do you actually try to convey when you say I'm from New York? What What is it that you associate New York with? And what does that mean for the new people that you're about to meet is like, you know, are there any kind of behaviors that you feel come with being a New Yorker? Because sometimes I'm like, well, being Dutch and being a New Yorker is not that different because I think that we have quite a few things in common. For example, you know, talking too fast, um, maybe being a bit blunt, not being so sometimes not being so kind to one another. I mean, yeah, uh, I, I think that we have quite a few things in common. 
Well, not to mention New Amsterdam was the original name of New York. So, hey, our, our roots are rooted yeah, in the same. Yeah, that's very true. Although, you know, <laughs> then, then I have to kind of like break open the can of worms that was colonization. And I don't want to do that. <laughs> no, 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 we don't want to go there. Uh, no. that's, that's, that's actually interesting to think about. What is it that I want to convey by saying I'm from New York? And I think it's exactly that. I think it's, um, and I talked about this on another episode, but my abrasiveness Um you know, I'm a tough guy. Don't mess with me. I'm from New York. Yeah. You don't want to. You don't want to mess shield. with me. It is a shield. Yeah. Oh, I like it though. I, I'm proud of my shield. Yeah, but it also makes you think more about what you are once you take yourself out of the equation and you're somewhere different. You know, it's like, what are you? It's like, what does that mean for you? What does it mean for others? It's like that's why identities are so interesting when you think about it and how it changes constantly. You know. You've really got the wheels turning now. I'm like, who am I? I thought yeah. this whole time <laughs> I knew, and now it's just a shield. Yeah. Um, part of your introduction, though, you mentioned uh, that you're an academic. And I feel like we hear that term a lot, and a lot of people don't really understand what that means. Can you explain that a little bit more? Well, I remember that people used to say that it's it's just another word for work shy, and which isn't really true because I work really, really, really hard. Yeah, um, you do. But uh, so for me, an academic means that I uh, both teach um, at college. So I teach at the City University of New York and also at Stockton University in New Jersey. And I do research. And I would say of the two, a lot of people do them in tandem, you know, but of the two, it's like my heart is with doing research and writing books. So that's what I uh, have been doing for, well, since uh, far too long. <laughs> but I really, I kind of picked up, I did my PhD. I finished in, what was it, 2010? And then I actually had a hiatus and worked kind of on the fringes of academia, worked in psychology a little bit in publishing. And then about six years ago, I kind of went back to, it was actually a person who I'm still very good friends with, who reached out to me, who did a very similar research project as my uh, PhD project, which was about communist families during the Cold War. And, uh, and he had done something similar in America. And he said, oh, why did you not write a book based on this PhD thesis, or as they call it in America, it's a dissertation. Um, I did my PhD in England, so that's why I used the word thesis. But anyway, <laughs> so she was actually, he was actually saying, it's like, you know, encouraging me to pick up history again and to write this book. So, so that's what I did. And while doing that, I also thought, well, maybe I should start teaching history as well. So I kind of, went back and I kind of like went full circle, but it did mean that I had to start from scratch again and didn't have much of a network because I did my PhD in England, lived in the Netherlands. A lot of the times when academics want to get jobs, they get it through knowing people, fraternities, sororities, all that kind of stuff. And I didn't have any of that kind of network. So I really had to start at the bottom and I'm working my way up but I'm taking on far too much. And that's kind of one of the reasons why I'm so busy, <laughs> perhaps <laughs> unlike other academics, but uh, yeah, definitely working six days a week, uh, 10 hours a day. So it's been crazy. Yeah. I mean, every time we talk to you, it's like you're working on some paper or some book and it's always something that when you tell me up front, uh, my brain kind of fritzes. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? But then when you're so good at explaining things in such a thoughtful manner that is attainable for everyone to understand. Because, oh, thank you. Yeah, the, but the concepts you talk about, too, are 
you know, historical things that we know some things about, but you dig deeper into these topics and you really yeah. get to the heart of why, you know, these these groups come to be. So you mentioned, you know, working on the fringes, but I think a lot of the um, research that you do are about groups that are on the fringes too, if I'm Yeah, correct. very true. Yeah. Yeah. Would you, uh, can you expand on a little bit of the research that you do? Sure. So um, back in 2001, I started. I, I, I was in, and uh, I was hired as a uh, intern at the International Institute for Social History, and they asked me to interview people who had grown up grown up in communist families during the Cold War. So this is in the Netherlands, and it was just about you know their daily life. It was about social isolation. It's like what was it like to be pretty much hated by everyone else because this is the cold war which was pretty freaking terrible in the netherlands as well as in america it's like when you think about mccarthy a lot of people do know about mccarthy and the red scare you know in the netherlands it was very similar so these children had a really difficult time and so i was just really interested in how they experienced life and upbringing and you know radicalization their own political activism how do they look back on their youth so I worked on that for almost 20 years. Uh, I re-interviewed people. So I kind of, you know, we all grew up together. It was really interesting because I was, of course, you know, I was, what was I, 20 years old when I started that project. And, you know, I didn't have children. I wasn't a parent myself. So as I was working on this project and re-interviewing people, my life had changed, which really changed my whole perspective. And again, identity is really important here because once you become a mother and you talk about parenthood you start to look at it from the perspective of the parent rather than from the child so even though perhaps the stories i think that every single person's story changes over time but you know i also changed so it was a really interesting kind of journey that you know it, it revealed as much about myself as it did of my you know of my respondents so I finished that or kind of finished that. I wrote many, many research papers and two books about this. It's the gift that keeps on giving. I just always find <laughs> other things to talk about. And, you know, I can even make it sexy. I talked about, you know, one of my papers is is titled Distributing Condoms on the Factory Floor. And it's about like sexual health because communists were like really progressive with lots of things. And uh, so, you know, it, it kind of sells, sex sells still. Um, anyway, so... Uh, about two years ago, three years ago now, I decided to, you know, complete that project and then move to the complete other side, talking of fringes, right, to your point, mm -hmm. um, to the radical right. So I thought, you know, I came up with this new project and it, it was very similar to my first project. And it was about, you know, I wanted to interview people who had grown up in clan families in the American South not because the clan was only active in the South and not because racism is confined to the South. That is happening absolutely everywhere, but it was just because it was so prevalent and there were, you know, um, they were more popular, but they also resembled more of like a movement or a subculture. So that that's what I was interested in, like the social aspects and the cultural aspects. So then I had to find, of course, people, which was really hard. <laughs> I had to find people who wanted to be interviewed. It took me like two years to find 20 people in total. And I didn't just interview people. I At the end, I have interviewed about 12, 12 people who grew up in clan families. Three of those actually became clan members themselves. So that was uh, interesting. And I interviewed them all, you know, like at least two, three times, two to three hours each interview. 
So altogether, very in-depth kind of interviews. And we talked about everything, but we mostly talked about how ideology is being passed from one generation to the next. I was particularly interested in the spaces where people, for the first time, realized that what their parents had told them, their ideology, wasn't reality. It didn't quite match with what they saw. So, for example, for some people that would be in college. And first they went to segregated schools. And even after integration, a lot of the children of white supremacists were taken out of these integrated schools and they were put into segregated private schools. Hmm. In other places, you know, in the South, children were just going to schools that were all white anyway, because they lived in an all white kind of area. But anyway, so they would then go to college and it would be a fully integrated college. So that was the first time that they would meet people um, that were on the same power level. Right. Because that's such a bit that's such a big difference, because a lot of a lot of Southern people look back fondly on having a close relationship to you know, the help, and this is, you know, I can't mm-hmm. really do the, the quotation, but the help, which is an awful kind of way of describing someone. Same thing with a mammy, equally weird word. But, you know, these, these are people that um, that were present in their lives and they thought that they were really close to it. And yes, there was love. And when you read more about what, you know, uh, Black domestic workers, uh, their testimonies are always full of, you know, they really cared for the children that they cared for. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so um, none of these, you're employing this person. That person is might be terrified of you as well as loving you, you know, but it's very clear that who is on top, right? Mm-hmm. So then for the first time, they go to college and it's different, right? And then another thing, is that they would go to go off to the army. And I that's where I found the most interesting kind of uh, experiences. And I'll, I'll tell you about it in a second. Wow. So in the army, they would just, uh, someone someone told me this, this anecdote and I thought it was really interesting. So he was talking about, he grew up in a middle-class family in Jackson, uh, in Mississippi. He, they had no contact with, you know, black people whatsoever. So, and he was also told that you don't eat with black people. You don't, they weren't allowed to go to swimming pools anyway. It was like, you wouldn't really, you don't, you don't really interact unless it is needed, you know? So he went into the army and the first time that he has to shower, he realizes he has to just stand there in this large room and there is shower heads all around the room. And right next to him is a black soldier having a shower. And he's standing there and he's looking at his own bare feet. And he's like, for he's like, and he said, it's like, this sounds hysterical to you, right? But I was thinking about how my feet were touching water that had run off a black body. And he said, and you know what? Nothing happened. I didn't have any physical reaction. Nothing happened. And he thought that that was like the craziest thing. And then he told me about his friend. And his friend had a similar experience also in the army. Again, one of those spaces where people realize that the reality that they grew up with is really not what it you know can be outside of their own little white bubble. So this other friend was talking about how it was like it was sweltering hot, right? It was super hot. He was in North, uh, South Carolina, yeah, base camp or whatever. And on a day off, they were allowed to go uh, go out and they decided to go to a swimming pool and this was an integrated swimming pool so there is like these black 
soldiers were already in the water and they said to this man who obviously had also grown up in a fully segregated family and society really and he was like I'm so hot I'm just I'm just gonna dive in and he had exactly that same kind of realization as he dove into the swimming pool surrounded by black bodies nothing happened nothing happened at all and that is just like some of the examples of like how people who have been raised they've been so indoctrinated they have just been listening they heard all these stereotypes and this is just ingrained in their being that the two races must be separate and then the first time when it comes together that's what i want to research i want to see what happens in those spaces and what they do with that experience because I think the key in our fight against racism lies in those stories. What is it that makes people, you know, break or not follow in their parents' footsteps? What is it exactly that goes, do they have a moment of realization that they're like, I don't want to do this. This is not for me. Even though everyone in their society or community is following that, they decide to break. Why do they do that? So those are some of the things that I'm working on. And it's, you know, obviously I talk too much, <laughs> but it's it's really interesting. My eyes are bulging out of my head right now. How powerful, how powerful and how needed and necessary those stories and those experiences are. And I, I've said this to you before, but I think that the work that you're doing is so needed and so necessary because for those exact reasons that you gave, you know, why? Why did they come to these, you know, realizations or why did they feel this way? And why and how also do our parents and our upbringing have um, an influence on how we identify and how we move our way through the world? Whew. We can, I'm sure you, I'm sure, you know, throughout this conversation, you'll probably throw in some more anecdotes and stories like that. But wow. So you've explained, you know, being a Dutch woman and coming here and the work that you do being an academic and an educator. And, you know, we all have these ebbs and flows as we're coming about these things. And you had mentioned, you know, you started some of the work that you did when you were 20 years old and you saw yourself change and you saw yourself grow with the the folks that you were working with. And throughout this time, was there ever a point when you felt like a fraud or you had imposter syndrome? Yeah. So I think that this is an even better question. I love this question. And, you know, the answer is yes. It actually made me smile when I saw that question because mm -hmm. yes, I do feel like that all the time. And I have felt like that so many times. And, and you know what it is? It's okay to feel like that. And I only just came to that realization. So another, you know, an, an anecdote is that I, I remember when I was doing my PhD at the uh, University of Sussex, my mentor, who was, um, he uh, passed away, may he rest in peace. He was an incredible scholar, right? I cannot even put into words how much I looked up to him. He was, he was a boss. I mean, like the man was fantastic. Mm. Uh, and he also became a very dear friend. He was like a working class hero, right? And maybe that's one of the reasons why he told me the thing that I'm going to tell you now mm. is that. I had never heard of imposter syndrome um, when he told me this story. He said that whenever he spoke at a conference or an important meeting, that he expected someone to raise their hand and ask what the hell he was doing there, that he had no business being there. And I mean, this man could fill a lecture hall in a heartbeat. And still, he thought 
that someone was going to call him out that he didn't belong there. And again, it's like, this could well be because he was, you know, a working class man and an intellectual. Maybe that was one of the reasons that he felt that he didn't quite belong. But anyway, so whenever I feel like a fraud, for no good reason, other than I think that, you know, everyone in the room is smarter than me. I don't know what it is about me, but I always think that, you know, but it doesn't keep me actually from speaking because I do I do speak up, but then I feel really bad about speaking up. I don't know. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a complex person, I guess. But I always think of him when this happens, when I'm kind of overwhelmed with this feeling that I am actually a, you know, a fraud. And thinking of him gives me kind of like a boost of confidence because the way that I translated it is that if he has that, then it must be something to do with the fact that we have very high standards, that we are the perfectionists. And those are the people that tend to feel like frauds or imposters, you know? But it's important that we don't feel disabled by these feelings, that we can just place them and think it's like, hey, yeah, this is how you feel. This is how you always feel, but let's just get over it and let's just do what we have to do, what we set out to do. He also, by the way, told me, this mentor also told me another invaluable lesson. He said to me, if you want to keep your friends, don't talk about your research because it will bore them senseless. <laughs> <laughs> and I always try to keep that in mind whenever I meet new people, but sometimes I fail miserably. Thankfully, when I started uh, researching you know, the Ku Klux Klan and white supremacist people don't find it so boring anymore because it's something that they find quite interesting. So it's, you know, I'm a little bit, I, I tend to talk a little bit more about my research nowadays. I'm laughing because I tease you a lot about we'll be out at a bar and we'll be, you know, we'll have had many refreshments and then you'll just go into the Holocaust. I'm like, Elka, there's a place and a time. <laughs> Yes, I, I totally do that. <laughs> yes, yeah. Oh, and yes. Yeah, speaking of which, there's not only about that some research is deemed boring, some research is deemed completely inappropriate. And then you have to think about the words that you use too. For example, it's like, I can never say, it's like, oh, I had so much fun teaching the, the Holocaust today, you know? Yeah. Oh, you know, my students and I, everything, you know, we can't say that something, things can only be interesting. It's like, oh, it was very, it was very eye-opening. Oh, it was very interesting. It can never be fun. It's like, mm -hmm. you can never crack a joke. Mm -hmm. It's always easy to kind of like make fun of any kind of Nazis because <laughs> they're, they're kind of funny people. So we can crack a little side joke about, you know, Goebbels or something jokes like that. Of, jokes about Nazis are always allowed, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Um, Yes, but it is very, very hard. And going back to identity and how things also change as you get older. Uh, and for me, again, becoming a mother really made a huge difference that anything that I show my students that involve, you know, parents trying to save their children, Phil doing so, anything to do with children, it I'm bawling. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I cry in my classroom quite you know, often. And I don't really mind. At first, I was really embarrassed about it. But now I'm like, you know what, I'm a human being, and I'm showing you the worst of the worst of humanity. So, you know what, it's like, it doesn't even seem to make sense to use these two things in one sentence, humanity and what happened during the Holocaust, you know, but um, yeah, it's definitely and, and also speaking of identity, I really try to highlight 
within these classes, you know, all the different groups of victims. And we talk a lot about intersectionality because, of course, when we talk about identity, we often talk about intersectionality. And I think, you know, you have kind of like hinted as, as well in, in, in past podcasts about like, you know, it's like these things overlap, right? It crosses. It's like there's an intersection where like your multiple identities kind of like meet, right? So in terms of the Holocaust, we talk about, for example, you know, communist Jews or gay Jews, you know, and in a way, intersectionality, interestingly, was kind of, you know, uh, the, the Nazis were already very much aware of it. For example, if you were a, a you know, a, a gay Jewish person, you would have, you know, you would have a, a pink triangle and then also a yellow triangle together making a Star of David. So, and so they knew about multiple identities, but then how do you then remember, it's like you go into a crisis situation you're going into like something like the, the holocaust and you were probably just identifying yourself as you know for example a gay man and then you become persecuted not just for being gay but mostly because you were jewish how does that change how you identify do you become more jewish as you are being persecuted in a different way than other other gay men you know and how does that change things when you come out of that you know if you survive mass murder you know if you survive something like that how does that change the way that you identify yourself so I find those things very interesting that's why I was so happy to be on this podcast to talk about identities it's something that I think about all the time yeah that's why one of the reasons obviously because you're a great friend and you have a lot of interesting things to say but I was really excited because in your research the expansive identity can just like touch on so many areas like you just mentioned and it kind of just it's things that we know of but aren't at the forefront of our minds and to to think about being Jewish and being gay in those times I, I, I couldn't even imagine like I couldn't imagine like no how do you choose but also no but it's it is it is very interesting though because to understand what happened which is very hard but an atrocity like like the Holocaust um, but we have compartmentalized all of the victims' experiences. So mm -hmm. there was no room after the Holocaust for people who were Jewish and gay. You you had to choose lanes, you know, which it was really difficult for people. And the same thing like with gender, you know, women had a had a drastically different experience than men. It's like, but all of those kind of nuances are kind of gone because you're all kind of lumped into these categories. And I have a real problem with people overemphasizing these categories because I think that we are made of so much more than just the one identity and you know of course uh, that's that's kind of what the the podcast is about mm -hmm. exactly and you know I can identify in so many different ways I think a lot of the times we identify ourselves either by you know like we mentioned earlier our nationality a lot of people move uh, you know first thing you ask them especially in this town in los angeles it's like what do you do and what they do for their work is like the forefront of their identity but also you know what i was what i'm hoping with this podcast too is that you know we really get down to like the the root of people and where their hearts are at and that's why i was so happy that one of the first things you said was mother because I want to understand people of who they are in their core and what really resonates with them. And so I really appreciated hearing that. And with these multiple layers of our identity, which of yours make you most proud? 
And which have you struggled with the most? When you think about it, or when I think about it, is that everything that I'm proud of, I struggled with. And that makes me think that the two are related, that that sense of pride comes often after a struggle, overcoming a struggle, mm. and then you, you become proud of something, right? So for me, I couldn't even untangle those two things. So for example, I'm incredibly proud to be a mother, but I really, really, really struggled from the start. And, you know, I had so much self-doubt. I found it difficult to juggle being a mom, a wife, a worker. And eight years later, I still struggle. And, and parenthood continues to be this crazy roller coaster with these highs and lows that I never experienced before. Totally worth it, but it is full on. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my son is thriving. And I don't know if it is, the, if I can, you know, give myself a ton of credit for that because my husband is a fantastic co parent who looks after our son all the time. Um, but my son is a an amazing human being and I'm very proud of him what does worry me though I work all the time as I said I work six days a week and for the past five years I've just I try to make time for my family but it's been really hard and I think this is related and I've been thinking about this a lot I think it's related to an insatiable need to prove myself and so it's kind of rooted in insecurity is like if I work harder and I do more and I publish more then people will take me take me more like seriously and for a while I thought I was doing that all for my family you know get a career and get some financial security and I still think that that's part of it because I'm still working towards that goal that I want to have secure employment and nowadays in academia it's almost impossible because it's so exploitative but I would be lying if I say that I would do it all, that I'm doing all of this for someone else. Mm -hmm. And I do it for me too. And I think that's fine. As long as you don't become, become like a, a selfish narcissist. You know, I never buy it when people who are part of like a, a you know, competition, like a show on TV, like a reality show, like MasterChef or something. And they always say, I'm doing this for my family. I want to win this for my children. That's bullshit, if you ask me. I'm sorry, but that's bullshit. It's fine to want something for yourself. Somehow, and I see this, especially in women, that it seems like you can't say that as a mother, that you want something for yourself. As soon as you pop out a child, apparently you have to do everything in life for your children, you know, because doing something for yourself is considered unmotherly. And I don't agree with that. I think that my son would be prouder of me at the end if he sees that, that I have worked towards my own goals as well as trying to provide for him. So I think that when it comes to, you know, how would you, I don't think that we can stack these kind of like identity marker that one is, has, you know, more weight than the other. As I was saying, it's like I started with Dutch, but I think that all of those keywords are the same for me. They're all different and they're all the same in weight. So I never, I would never say that I am a mother first and an academic second mm -hmm. and, a, and a wife third. It's like, I don't think that we can rank these types of identities. They're all part of the same thing. Especially with those three things, they're, they're all so important. It'd be, it'd be unfair to, to rank them against each other. Exactly. It's, it's unfair to ask someone to, to rank them because it will put them then into that situation. Again, oftentimes harder for women who are mothers to choose 
the other thing that they're proud of, maybe their careers, like you have to, by definition, say that motherhood is the thing that you are the most proud of. Mm. And to me, it's just two, like, it's, it's just two of the, you know, things that make me, you know, who I am. So, but, you know, going back to your question, uh, aside from motherhood, I also found that, you know, writing books is a struggle. Sometimes I wonder, it's like, why are you doing this? And I can only, and I had, I had a child, so I can say this, but it is like childbirth. And I guess that once you publish and you have that relief and the kind of like, you know, you got this product in your hands and you're like, oh my God, I'm so proud of that. It's, it's great, you know. And then you forgot how hard it was. And then you sign another book contract and then you're like starting the whole thing again. You're like, oh my God, what am I doing to myself? But yeah, so again, struggle, pride, totally related to one another. Definitely. I where do you even begin writing a book? I, I, I wouldn't even know where to guess. Like, I guess you have a topic that you want to talk about, but <laughs> chapter one, like, does it start, <laughs> does it start as easy as that? Like, no, it doesn't. It, it's so interesting, though. I, I have lots of ideas that just rattle around in my head. And then whenever I go for a long walk, I just try to make sense of them. Because I think that the worst thing you can do is like, you'll get immediate writer's block if you start to write things down without giving it a lot of thought. So I've thought about my new book for a good two years. And I've just had all these ideas and I kept on kind of reorganizing them in my head until it was time to write it all down in a proposal. And now it all makes sense. But it was really hard because I was like, how am I going to organize? If you do life histories, which is that you ask your respondents, interviewees, to really talk about their whole life and that you have these questions that really kind of open up, you know, that that encourage them to talk about all sorts of different experiences, you know, from their affectionate behaviors of their parents to like going to school and what that was like, you know, work, friendships, sexuality, all sorts of different things. How on earth, that's really rich material, but how on earth are you going to organize that into a book and a coherent story? So, you know, you really have to think about like the themes and what is it really that you try to convey? So I don't have a lot of um, attention span. I'm a little, my my sister, when ADD was still a thing now, nowadays, I don't think that they use ADD as a term anymore, but, you know, I'm all over the place. I, I really easily can, I start with something that I find interesting. And before I know it, I'm like, oh, I have to answer this email. Oh, did I, did I read that book? Oh, did I read, did, did I return that book to the library? Oh God, <laughs> is my library card expired before I know it? It's like, so I have a hard time. I walk and then I find some kind of peace and quiet and I start to organize thoughts in my head and then I write them down. So that's kind of how I go about it. But I'm the slowest worker you can imagine. Mm -hmm. I think that the reason why I work so many hours a week is because I, I'm just very slow. I feel like everyone is always doing things so much faster. I can spend an hour on writing one email. Yeah. I don't think that's normal, but you know. I feel like there could be a whole course given on the language of email and how we change our language so much to fit what we're trying to convey into words, especially if you're in a professional situation. You're like, you know, uh, Elka, I hope you're having a great week. Uh, in reference to the conversation we had last week, we don't talk that way. It, it bugs me Please so much. Please find attached. <laughs> yeah. Per our last conversation, please advise. 
Oh God! <laughs> it's sending shivers. It down would be my very spine. funny though to start like a, you know, a TV show that only talks like that. I mean, at least if you have a character who just talks like that. Maybe maybe we will change, you know, the way that we have conversations. And I thought about this a lot. So as a, as a Dutch person. I don't know if other, you know, uh, non-native English speakers have the same issue, but what I often find is that I have reached a plateau. It's like I'm not improving my English and I'm losing my ability to speak Dutch. Mm. And so it's quite hard for me. The way that I write is really, I call it accessible. It could also be called simplistic. You know, I talk about very complex things. I'm not, you know, it's like it's not that my lack of variety in my vocabulary has anything to do with kind of like that I can't do complex thinking or something. Mm -hmm. But it's like the way that I write, it's really accessible. So, you know, people always think that, you know, I do that on purpose, but actually that's all I can do. It's like I can only write in an accessible way. So I'm actually hoping to write more nonfiction. I think I'm ready for that now. So, um, yeah. The book that you're writing now, is it about the children of the clan or, or what's the yes. subject? Cool. Yes, cool. that's that's gonna yeah, it's gonna be about that. Wow. That's gonna rock some worlds. Yes. Well, I'm really hoping the way that I structured it, and I think it's going to be quite interesting. And maybe I actually shouldn't talk about this because the the, the proposal hasn't been approved yet. So <laughs> let me let me just but it's like I'm I'm hoping by giving uh you know, collecting these different voices and that it's kind of creating the dialogue that a lot of people, I have different voices. Some people have become, you know, anti-racist activists. Others are unwilling to condemn their parents' beliefs and others have completely followed and have joined white supremacist organizations themselves. I've collected all of those kind of stories and I let them speak in in my book and I'm trying to kind of recreate the dialogue that is absent in today's society. It's like we're living in this really polarized world that people have a really hard time listening or interacting with people that have, you know, ideas and beliefs opposite of theirs. So I'm hoping that it just kind of like gives you a model of how to deal with people who do not aren't on the same political page or who do have different racial beliefs, but also to appreciate how long the journey often takes from being raised under these circumstances that are really quite extreme and how long it takes to kind of like re-socialize and find yourself in a space where you can call yourself an anti-racist. But I, I feel that people just want these things to happen overnight and they have very little patience with people who might not know the right words to you know talk about race and about racism and i think that we should give people a little bit more give them the space to get there you know and 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 give them credit for trying um doesn't mean that we shouldn't like that we should stop guiding them through that process it's really important that we're constantly there but we can only be there if we actually have conversations with them so at the end of the day i think it's important as we are about to go into thanksgiving i don't know when the podcast is going to go online but mm-hmm. you know if you're sitting around that that dinner table with that obnoxious uh uncle who says the most random horrible things that are simply not true it's like try to have a conversation you know it is really important because i've noticed and take it from me i'm i i've i've spoken to people who are straight up clan members who actually i i spoke to someone who's heading the clan 
in like he's he's you know the the actual leader of one of the larger clan groups in america and i a grand wizard yes he is a grand wizard yes or imperial wizard ah um <laughs> yes so and it was really interesting right but if i can talk to him you can talk to that annoying obnoxious uncle i think it's important uh, we need to keep on trying. We not, cannot take our hands off it. And I know it's what we have done. I think that a lot of people have done that, you know, especially in the last few years that they are like, I can't do this anymore. I just rather cut all ties with my family. But I think that we need to keep on trying. Yeah, I think you're so right. I have a couple questions about that because personally, well, I'm one to avoid confrontation. I don't really like it. But I find myself in those situations to get very heightened and frustrated and emotional. And I don't know how to rein in what I'm feeling to be a thoughtful back and forth with somebody, you know. And also, when it comes to family members, too, I don't want to, as much as I may not believe what they are saying, I don't want to push them away. I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable and unsafe to express these whatever ideologies that they have because I still want to be able to have that dialogue with them. I still want to be able to let them know, have them feel that like they can express themselves to me in whatever way that that is and which would allow me to open up that dialogue into like, well, it's interesting that you say that. Um, this is what I've found out about this, that, and the other thing. Is there, do you have any anecdotes that we could use to like kind of keep our composure or are there, you know, I've heard of different things that people say, like, uh, for instance, like there's this meme or whatever going around saying like, if someone insults you in a meeting, one thing that you could say to them is like, oh, that's an interesting thing you chose to say out loud. You know, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> there's thing, but there's things like that. There are specific wording and phrases that you can use that'll like trigger something in someone's head to be like, oh, and like you know, they might not have heard what they said or heard it in the way that it was being conveyed. Do you have any type of advice that you could give in those situations? Well, it's I, I don't because I well I wish that I had. I do know, and I, I'm. I've been thinking about this a lot, right? I think that um, sometimes just by being kind, we don't always have to go into a hardcore debate with someone to have a positive influence on that person. Sometimes it's just being present, being kind. And a lot of our kind of ideology is also inside of, you know, it's also expressed in things that aren't so political at first sight. We talk about things like with our family, you know, you might talk about, you know, climate, but you don't want to bang on about climate change. But you will talk about certain things that seemingly are not connected, you know. So I think it's really important that you need to, if you leave that person's life altogether, they will not hear any of these kind of quite normal stories. They did. You need to be present and true, showing love and Trying to be the person who, you know, they might not be, but you should aspire to be. I think that that's the that's that's sometimes the only way that we can deal with family members, because I think with family members it's the hardest, right? Because you love them, and but you also hold them to a higher standard. That makes it so 
difficult to stand up when they say something. You don't want to hurt them. This is, by the way, one of the themes that comes back all the time is that one of the things that I ask my uh, respondents, especially the ones whose fathers have committed violent acts and hate crimes, that I ask them, how does loving your parent make you feel? Mm. Because we cannot, sometimes you cannot choose who we love. And and we should also give people who grow up under those circumstances the space to still love a parent. And I think that we are living in a society where people are expected to condemn their parents once they have gone over to the dark side. And I think that we all know that there are, you know, that people are so complex that they can be a great mother and they can be, they could also be a racist. You know, sometimes those two things. and. It depends on how you want to deal with that. Do you want to just take yourself? Is it does it become personal? Does it does it become so overwhelming that you can no longer? I'm not there to. I cannot make that decision for a person. I understand why people break with their family, with their community, with everything that they had because they can no longer find themselves being happy surrounded by this ideology that they don't agree with. So, but going back to your question, I think it's really it's really difficult. Uh, and I don't think that I would have any answers what to say to someone. Sometimes I gloss over things that people have said. I don't want to lose them. So I sometimes feel a little dirty afterwards that I didn't correct every single thing that they said. Mm-hmm. I don't think that you'll ever. And, you know, I'll give you I'll give you an example without actually saying the word, because, of course, it's a it's a vile word. But, you know. For example, you know, uh, I, I've spoken to people who use the N-word quite liber- liberally. I did not tell them every single time, oh, you can't say that word. Or I didn't even want to say the N-word because by saying N-word, I already lost them because they're like, oh, you feel that you're better than me? It's like, you think you're better than me because you don't say it out loud, you know? And th- those are things that you need to think about when you interview people. It's like you want them to feel safe, but what is too safe? Am I going to give them a platform? Because this is the biggest kind of danger that you can find yourself in, is that you're giving white supremacists a platform to talk about their ideology. And then what you're trying to do is totally the opposite. The product is totally the opposite of what you intended to do. So it's for each and, and, and every one of us to decide what is too far. Where are your personal boundaries talking to someone you don't agree with? So I think, you know, as you were saying, it's like we need to figure that out. And it really also depends on what kind of relationship you have with that person. Yeah. And thank you for allowing that perspective of having that permission to choose because, you know, we're always told, and I do firmly believe that we need to stand up, especially as as white cis women, we need to stand up and be the ally to discriminated against groups. You know, we need to have that dialogue in order to evoke change. However, you can certainly shut somebody out and not get that message through if all you're doing is pounding them and pounding them. There has to, you know, there has to be everyone is unique, obviously, and there has to be an open conversation about how you approach these things with different people. Because 
you know, you're, you're kind of alluding to this, but you always want to go with compassion and you always want to lead with love. That's the only way that things are going to change in this world is if we lead with compassion, with love, not with hatred, not with fear, not with adversity. I, I, I don't believe that. And But we have to stand up and you make a really good distinction here. It's like, so I am talking about two different, two different kind of situations. If that person that I interview, if I would be, meet that person in public and that person would do something that's hurting someone else, I would stand up against that person or at For least I, sure. I like to think that I would, right? Mm -hmm. But if I then have a intimate conversation one-on-one -on -one with this person, I might give them a little bit more leeway that they can ex explain where they're coming from without shutting it down right away. Was this in public? I would have done, you know, something really quite different. So, but then the question of course is, what if I would meet these per these people in, in public? What would I do? You know, because that that would be, I don't think that that would ever happen, but I wouldn't really know how to deal with that situation either. It's like, am I going to go up there and, and, you know, shake their hand and say, it's like, hey, it's good to see you. I don't think so, you know, but we shared a lot. It's like, and we even had a lot of, uh, you know, we found common ground and it's really interesting and it's scary, it's but it's also comforting to find common ground in people that don't that you don't agree with because and i think that a lot of people have an issue with this right if they need to see people as evil as monsters as almost a species completely different from a human being in order for it to to make sense in their heads they find it frightening that just the notion that we share so much and that a lot of people that we have so much in common with them talk about parenthood with any kind of you know any of the people that i've spoken to regardless if they became anti-racist activists or joined the clan themselves they spoke about parenthood in exactly the same terms you know they wanted exactly the same things for their children so i find that a comforting thought because you know what that's a starting point we have something in common and we can talk about this and let's see where where, where it gets us to you know let's see if we can build on these kind of similarities and see if we can find some other ways to kind of bridge and to see if we can recruit people away from these organizations or, you know, show them a different ideology that might actually still have the same values. Because after all, if we share this, there must be other things that we can share too. Maybe we can just, you know, try to find them. It's like search a little harder. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. And I, I think you and I have talked about this separately, but I, I saw a video once where someone went into a Trump rally and ask mm -hmm. them questions about what they're looking for. And I wish I can give an example of one of the questions, but what it came down to is we all want the same things. We really we do. all want the same things. However, they might go about it in a very different way. But at the end of the day, we all are we all want to thrive. We want our families to be safe. And, you know, we want to live in a in a happy, healthy community. And it's just a matter of when ideology takes over. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it sounds so it sounds so simple, but why can't we talk about that more? About the things that we have in common? Why has society is just so incredibly focused on what we don't have in common with one another? You know, it's like I find that and you know, I don't want to be all kumbaya, but it's <laughs> like it's it's you know it's just I, th I think that we can achieve so much more by focusing on what we do have in common and take it from there yeah 
Here at the Identity Shockwave podcast, we love a kumbaya moment. So <laughs> bring it, bring it. Um, well, to pivot a bit in the stories that you were just sharing, decisions were made. You know, th- thoughts were uh, brewed from a young age, and it kind of changed the way people lead themselves and live their lives. And I can only imagine that at some point, someone like yourself may have come along and shown them a different perspective that maybe changed your life. So for you personally, was there ever something like that? Or was there ever a decision that you made that changed the trajectory of your life? You know, there's like, there's so many different things, but I, I really think that the thing that really does, did change my life is, is moving to the United States. You know, it has changed my life completely. I, I, as you mentioned, I moved to New York City in 2011 and I was supposed to stay for one year. That was me. I was like, oh, I'm going to, I have a visa for a year. Let me just stay and, you know, see what it's all about. And then I met you. And my husband. And our ragtag <laughs> The next <friends>. day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And uh, so 12 years later, I'm still here. Uh, and, and because I never intended, this is, this is quite interesting, actually, going back to right and going full circle, right? Um, because I never intended to stay. I never called the United States my home. But as the years went by, and especially after having a child, I realized, going back to the Netherlands, that that didn't feel like my home anymore. So this was before I actually called the United States my home. I already felt like the Netherlands were no longer my home. Hmm. And so I made the decision, and this is only a few years ago, which to some people might sound like crazy that it took me that long to start calling the United States my home. And I got to say, it's like, of course, the United States is not an easy one to love. I mean, it has lots to offer, but it also has a lot. Of, it's also quite problematic. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, it's not like moving to Sweden. It's like, you know, it's like <laughs> so I'm also I'm not a U.S. citizen and I will never be because I have to give up my Dutch citizenship in order to become uh, an American citizen. Really? And I don't. Want, yeah, I don't want to do that. Um, for my son, he has dual citizenship, but that's not possible. This, you know, it depends on the country that you're in. Mm. Some of these countries are changed, like it's changing, but I'm pretty sure that the Netherlands uh, is still the same. So it's it's a weird one. And it has to do again with, you know, what you were asking is like, what are you? I'm Dutch. So it's a weird one that I identify as Dutch, yet it doesn't feel like home anymore. So I'm this kind of like rootless person. I feel like I'm very happy where I am. Also, one has to keep in mind that you can remain your nationality in New York City. As you also pointed out, there are so many. It's a multicultural society. There are so many people with different backgrounds and we can all kind of, you know, learn from each other. So it's it's great. I mean, you're young, you're all going out together. It's wonderful. But it also doesn't like living that life you're not really American and you're not really actually part of society either. It's like when you're young and you're moving, like, you know, you lived in Williamsburg, I lived in Bed-Stuy. It's like, we're not really part of, you know, of, it's, that's not the real world in a way. Mm-hmm. It's also not really part of society. We're living in this weird kind of bubble. It was great. But then you have a child and then all of a sudden you got to do these things that Americans do. Crazy. I remember the very first time Halloween 
going to knock on doors and ask for candy. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> I thought it was crazy. I thought it was so embarrassing. So I would have Nina would just like walk up to the door and knock on the door and I would just turn my back and I would just like, you know, kind of like shamefully kind of like put my face to the other side because I was just embarrassed about the notion that you just like knock on someone's door and ask for candy. I thought it was a really weird thing. Then also like going through school, a school bus, how exotic, never been on a school bus. And then my child goes on a school bus. And I know that these things sound, you know, crazy to people, but these are things that you oftentimes only, um, you know, become aware of after having a child because your child is an American. My child is an American. So I have to do American things. But Going back to your other question about being an imposter, I know I'm an imposter. Not only did I stick out, and for your listeners, I'm a rather tall person. <laughs> with uh, you know, it's like I don't look in any kind of way American. Everyone always knows that I am not American. Well, it doesn't so... help that you ride a bicycle everywhere too, <laughs> <laughs> and wear clogs. Oh no, I don't. Do that. <laughs> only inside the house. <laughs> um, but yeah, so sometimes I feel like an imposter trying to be like, you know, sitting on the sideline, just, you know, being like a soccer mom or something like that. And we don't even call it soccer. So I'm like, no, it's football. No, <laughs> But yeah, sitting on the sidelines and just doing the whole like being a good mom and doing what all these, you know, lovely suburban moms do. Yeah, it, it, sometimes I feel like I'm a, I'm a fraud. Not only am I actually a punk that still feels like a teenager, I'm also not an American. And yeah, this is called you know, football and not soccer. So yeah, there's that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Punk teenager. I still very much identify with that. I probably will till I'm 80 years old. Um, yeah, we'll never change. We'll never change. Oh. You know what? I'm happy about that. And by the way, um, the second decision, and I do have to add this too. So the second decision that changed my life was of course, um, having my son. Uh, and this is an interesting one, not because, you know, for some people it is you know, of course, it's going to change the traje trajectory of your life. But in art, it's like talking about a decision. I got pregnant. It was not planned at all. Actually, the only reason why I got pregnant is because I lost my health insurance and didn't have birth control anymore. So it was really I lost my job, lost my health insurance. Then I got pregnant. So we really had to make a decision. Do we want this? You know, is this what we're going to go for? And I was already in my late 30s and I was like, well, this might be my only chance. So let's just go for it. You know, and I remember that phone call with my with my husband is like, shall we shall we do this? And it was just, you know, couldn't really be happy. But then we were happy and we're really pleased. And, you know, again, another just like moving to the United States is one of those things that I've, you know, I've made that decision. And I'm really glad that we we stuck with it and that we made it made it made it work. It's funny, I, I will never get this out of my head, but asking Danny about when you were pregnant and, you know, what do you do? Like, how do you, how do you figure it out? And he's like, Lore, you just make it work. And I was like, yeah, and I'll never forget that. Yeah, you just, what is that word that I'm looking for? Blagging? What is the, what's that word? It's like that you're just pretending that you know what you're doing, you know, but anyway, Yes, I'm just I that's what you do as a parent all the time. It's like, you know, you just don't know. Well, I'd like to give you the opportunity if there's anything else about your work um, that you, I mean, we talked a lot about your research and how it relates to identity. But is there anything else that you that comes to mind that you think is like just really telling about about identity and how certain groups, you know, present themselves? There's something about that. It's 
totally cool to be proud of an identity marker. But I think that we have to sometimes be more observant of that, how these markers change, right? And how our priorities change and how we're constantly as a person change as, you know, at the start of the, the podcast, we were talking about like how it changes just by going into a different space that who you are changes. Like one of the really important kind of examples of this that are given, uh, I taught women and gender studies, the intro to women and gender studies. And they say about, you know, if you're, if you're gay and black, you're in a gay bar, you might not even have at that point in time, you might like, you know, there's like, depending on what the, what the kind of racial makeup is in that particular bar, but it might be that, that ident those identity markers don't really matter. Maybe you feel more like oh, I'm gay. I'm proud. I'm gay, blah, blah. Then you walk out, out of that and you're walking, you're going home through a white neighborhood, just stopped by the police. You're not gay anymore. You're black. Right. This is what happens in a nutshell in a lot of different ways, how we see our identities. And I think this, you know, I think that we have to give people the, the room to kind of like change their identities because it is a personal thing. But it is also a reaction being like your identity is also a reaction to your environment. Oh, yeah. And and that dynamic is really misunderstood. I think, uh, among a lot of people who are kind of like holding on, it's like, you can only be this, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and it's not like that. And you said it so in your very first, it's like describing your, your own identities as, you know, an Italian American, as a vegan, you know, as a woman, it's like, yeah, sometimes we, we, we can almost forget about the other identities because we really zoom in on the one and that is fine. And people are allowed to do that. It's, it's their identities. I don't think that people should be judgy about it. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of the times being, as you might say, a chameleon gets looked down upon. Uh, gets yes. looked down upon as being a people pleaser or being yeah. you know, a shapeshifter that you're not being your most authentic self. Absolutely, And it yes. also is like kind of like, um, I, I don't know if defense mechanism is, is the way I'm, uh, the right way to put it, but like as a way of assimilating to protect yourself. Very true. It's like, and, and you know, but again, it's up to that person. I don't think that judgment from others is going to be very helpful. I think that being called out as, you know, a bad, whatever, bad vegan, for example. It's like, there's a lot of people who have a lot of judgment, right? There's a whole documentary and, and about that. What does it help to be that judgmental? It's like, if you want to do those things, then that is totally fine. That's your life. And as long as it doesn't hurt others, to me, I'm like, that is fine. Whatever, you know, floats your boat. Is that how you say it? Yep. But you, we need to stop kind of like pushing our own ideas onto other people. It's like there shouldn't be, you know, like we're already living compartmentalized lives enough that we, you know, what makes someone a friend that you have to be almost identical in every single way. And it just, it's tiresome. And also, you know what? It gets really boring to be at a party with only people who are all the same. You know, I want, I, I like the idea of having different people with different ideas. Yeah. And sometimes I will not agree with those ideas as long as those people are not hurting other people, either emotionally or physically, then it's fine with me. I will sit there and I'll have a conversation. And you know what? I might actually learn a thing or two. I find it interesting, too, that, you know, we live in coastal cities. 
And yeah. we're lucky to live in these places because we do have folks of all walks of life that we will experience different opinions and cultures um, that you might not get in other places. It only was until I started touring with bands that I saw Middle America and I saw the South and I saw places that, you know, aren't as diverse as you find in coastal towns and coastal cities. And I think it's so important. You know, I'm very, very grateful and fortunate to live in a city that is predominantly black, but also has a really big Latino culture. And, you know, it's only bringing in more and more folks that want to. And they're looking for it. I, I do agree with you. But then again, I was really quite shocked when I came to New York that, you know, I, I came from a, from a city at the time. I was living in Amsterdam and Amsterdam is really small. So you see the same people all the time. It feels almost like suffocating sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be moving to New York City. It's going to be great. I teach in Brooklyn, right? Uh, our school is one of the most diverse schools in the whole of America. There is 170 languages of something stupid being spoken in my school. It's like it's 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 insane. Don't quote me on that, but mm -hmm. it's something very a lot of different languages. And everyone is sitting with each other in their own little pods. It's like they're not interacting at all with one another. So I do think it's like you're using the term like a melting pot. It's like it's, I think it's unfortunate that in our kind of, you know, in our struggle to maintain identity, which is so important, it's like we no longer have to fully assimilate. But then again, that's a little bit of a lie as well, because to really count in this world, it's like we somehow have to adjust and conform to certain standards, right? So in that process, we sometimes lose our identity. But I do think that we can try harder to, you know, while maintaining identity and while maintaining our own culture, that we also find kind of like spaces to interact with people from different cultures and really try to make more of an effort with that. Well, I like to end our conversations by circling back to my first question, you know, having had all this discussion and you kind of touched on it earlier, but would you still introduce or describe yourself in the same way as you did? in the beginning of the show yes although well that's it that's another good question i suppose <laughs> um maybe the dutch thing now doesn't seem so much of a priority anymore maybe what we were talking about is sometimes we use identity as a shield to kind of already apologize what might come <laughs> i think that this conversation went quite well but i might have to listen to the recording to actually <laughs> see if i still need to kind of make the disclaimer i'm dutch what's your excuse <laughs> but no i think that the things that i have said and of course you know i'm i'm a little older i'm gonna be 44 next month i think that if you don't have if you haven't had it like you need to figure things out you know of course you can still like have add-ons certain things become more important other things become less important but i think you gotta you gotta figure out what you are and i think that i have figured it out by now you know i'm still working on many things and you know but the things that i told you who i am those you know those words i know that in 40 years time that's exactly what i still am you know and you know mm -hmm. we constantly evolve but what's great about that and what's great about you and I together as we evolve together and we we support each other and wherever we are growing into but I think at our core we're just still loving compassionate nerdy punk teenagers 
Oh, yes, we are indeed. <laughs> Dr. Elka Vacious, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a blast. Thank you. You've been listening to the Identity Shockwave podcast, hosted by me, Lori Vaitzig. Catch us next time for a new episode with a different guest that is sure to keep the conversation interesting. A big thank you to Let Me Crazy for letting us use their music. I'll catch you later. Yeah.